Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking podcast. We got Ed, Jim, and Far back for the 21st episode. In the booth, we got Eric Lavin, who's an education entrepreneur. We tackled two big topics. One is just education and its role in society, and two, charter communities um, or charter cities. You know, have they worked in the past and can they work in the future to bring a more equitable society? So listen up and enjoy. Eric Lavin on the pod with us today. He's an entrepreneur, an educator. He's currently, are you in Arizona still? Where are you? I'm in Arizona, Tucson, Arizona. He's in Tucson, Arizona. And it's perfect because we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, living communities, new living communities. So what better place to be than with someone who's who's out on the frontier in the the wild, wild west? Are you full cowboy yet? Mm. Uh, I'm like, I'm half ranch. I'm what they call a gentleman rancher. My brother has a, a horses mm-hmm. where he lives, so half cowboy. <laughs> I have some yeah. folks out there in, in Tucson. Yeah? Tucson's a very yeah, wonderful place. Yeah, you know, place. Joe, Joe, Joe Feynman, he ran, for, um, he ran for district attorney there last year. No, I don't, but sounds interesting. I mean, is that like a I'm Jewish a geography kind of deal, Jim? Just like Feynman, Lavin, no, know each well, other? No, no, <laughs> no, no. Wow, Jim. Because, um, wow, wow, Jim. He, he got me. He got me Damn. just now. That was a smooth one. He got me. He, got, he did Damn. the, you know, he did the, the flip side on me. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. No, nah, because he ran for office, so I kind of, you know, he's a, kind of a public figure, and he's he's Marty's nephew. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Hmm. It sounds like a good guy. You got, it's it's just like a field trip. Yeah, I love Tucson, man. I've been there a few times. I would, yeah. Well. You know, we've been chatting about, you know, Jim's on a full, should every black person be carrying guns? Do we need our own land? You know, I've been talking about just like just general migration patterns. I think we're all just thinking like all these different ways. Uh, But Eric and I have actually been on the side chatting about all sorts of crazy, like living communities for years. So when I started thinking about this, I was like, one, we need to bring him on to talk about that. But two, we haven't really brought on anyone who does education. And I feel like that's something that the three of us don't really know a lot about, um, but it is an important part of the conversation, especially as we're thinking through, you know, even in the, in the near term, like what does a lot of this look like? Because it's, you know, Jim, you've got a seven-year-old, you know, and I have to imagine like yeah. all the things that are happening right now, you know, is impacting you. Like you, you and your, your mom, you know, his mom didn't think that you were going to have to be teachers, right? So I, Eric, maybe yeah. just give people a little background even on though- uh, even though we're teachers all the time. Teachers all the time, but, you know, yeah. we're all educated in different ways on what we the can structure do. Part. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. What, what's the prompt? Dude, like, who are you? Like, what are you up to? Why are we talking to you? Yeah, well, okay, so I'm, a, <laughs> I'm an educator, and I come to that work. Uh, I started right after college as a, a high school civics teacher in the Mississippi Delta, a town called Helena, Arkansas, small town in the Mississippi River, 8,000 people. And, you know, I had a couple of, good experiences in the classroom as a teacher um but that didn't happen every day and looking back on those like good experiences where like students were like kind of like their eyes caught on fire and things were going well like i'm now able to look at that and understand what was going on which is they were learning um and we too often conflate the school with learning and 
education with the school. And basically, the way I've come to see it is, you know, humans are learning animals. They are going to learn on their own. They can adapt to any context. Uh, everyone learns to you know, walk and talk. And that's very complicated stuff. Um, but then we, you know, put kids into school and say, you know, sit here for 50 minutes and learn reading or math or history or civics. And that's not how humans work. Um, and so, you know, I really do love starting and ending with education and at the, you know, to jump to the kind of community question, like a lot of people say like, well, how can you anchor these new communities? I think it's, you know, education is the highest good and education should be true, good and beautiful and everything can go from there. Um, and it's such a good time right now to just like look at what's going on with what we call public education and what happens in our schools uh, and say like, is that really what we want to be happening? Um, because Jim is absolutely right. Like a parent is a teacher. I mean, everyone is a teacher, you know, the quote unquote capital teacher that gets a credential, they're hugely valuable to society um and like we need we're gonna need uh that for forever uh, i think the role should evolve um but that's not to say that parents aren't teachers i saw some stuff on social media like principals saying like teach you know parents don't like try to like inspire your kids or like you know just stick to the schedule and it's just like to me the craziest thing like like humans especially now and in the future humans need to be inspired like uh what we're competing against is, you know, can we get interested in the world? Um, or are we just going to like be bored? Uh, and every kind of young person has that challenge. And, uh, um, you know, my perspective is that school doesn't do a great job of helping them build their interest and curiosity muscles. Mm -hmm. Eric, you said that education is the highest good. And that yeah. kind of struck a chord with me in many ways. Can you go ahead and expand on that a little bit? What do you mean? Uh, I would really wish I was the kind of person who could quote Plato off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure he says something like, when you go to the next life, all you're going to have is your culture and education. Mm. Um, and mm. that's like who, who you are. And it's, mm. it's I, I think that uh, if we already, I mean, you know, if we start from the premise that uh, society is not organized the way we want it to be, we, we need to ask like, well, how do we want to organize society? And I would say education needs to be near the top of the list. How do you think about the way that education has more so been angled to be more of a, of a sort of a jobs machine rather than, you know, education being one of personal growth, socializing yourself, kind of growing into, you know, sort of the person emotionally and, and, and socially um, in a school setting rather than, Oh, we're just, you know, we're just training you. It's every, every, you know, we're just straight up voca vocational uh, training and just school is just sort of created to feed people into high paying jobs. Like, I think that shift has happened a lot sort of in the last couple of decades. But I mean, what are your, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on did, that? Did you just answer yeah. that whether education is connected to capitalism? Um, maybe, maybe in an indirect way. But I think there's some other things that have exerted yeah. some pressure to angle it that way which I, I want to get into, but I wanted to get Eric's first thoughts on just that. Yeah, yeah, um, I mean, I think in a non-American history context, there's a very old conversation in education philosophy of, is this about vocational education for everybody and individualized uh, tutoring and liberal arts for the few? 
Um, and either in American history, this is memorialized in something called the Committee of Ten, which in 1892 basically standardized high school curriculum. And it's basically these 10 um, university presidents having a debate about whether people should be learning um, the poetry and the arts in Latin or like science and math so that we can industrialize as a society. Um, and so right. this is a persistent theme. Um, I think in the modern context, it's a very, it's an interesting time to ask that question. It's a great time to ask that question because we have all these digital technologies where it's no longer a question of if or, it's you can do both and for sure. I mean, the internet is the most powerful liberal arts university in the history of the world and it's only going to become more so over time i think there's a separate question around i mean well it's not a separate question it's like all one integrated thing i mean the aims of our education system i think are pretty you know they were designed for a different time and i think they were designed for what your question hints at which is like we need people to fill roles another thing i just added in the conversation is uh, i take a learner-centered lens on this which means that like what's good for every learner is going to be different and they're going to need different things. I think it's, it's, um, you know, I, and I, before the, the current company works, so I'm a, you know, I'm a, I think we talked about this down in Tulsa. Yeah. I'm a recruiter right now at a tech company. And, you know, I'm literally obsessed with when I'm filtering candidates and looking or, or sourcing and looking for folks to, to hire, I'm looking for much more of a specialization and in, in, in their backgrounds, depending on what the role I'm hiring them for. Right. So I think I think it's probably like a, a more of like a corporate-centered uh, design when it comes to higher education. And you know, even before becoming a recruiter, I worked at General Assembly, which is literally just that. Like, you know, it's like the reskilling for the modern economy or something. Like that was the tagline right. for General Assembly, right? right? This is the, this is the new thing that was created. Right. It was, it obviously, it's obviously repurposed vocational school, but just for coding and design and product management. And this is the thing to help bridge people from you know, old archaic, you know, liberal arts colleges into the modern economy, right? Maybe right. not in those, in, in those words, but that's literally what it was, right? So, right. And, but, but now you're, you're seeing colleges uh, starting to adjust and, and, and really create these sort of meteor comp side programs and money and a lot of yeah. things. So it's sort of the, it's like the corporate view and it's, it's sort of the, uh, designing it backwards from, from corporate needs. And then I, I imagine people like journalists, journalism majors and liberal arts majors and, and humanities and history majors are probably right. this much more lower in uh, enrollment. And I think that that's probably from a larger context of just the economy's changing. The housing market is, is a lot different than, you know, what our folks and our grandparents were, were born into. And, and, you know, income is taking on more of the heft than wealth. And, you know, a lot of these things that, I, you know, we can, we can obviously uh, sort of break it down, um, you know, deconstructed by being a recruiter and working at the coding boot camp, which is the new thing. I think I, I think it's changed colleges, undergrad degrees for for probably the worse, honestly. Mm -hmm. we're, we're talking about well-rounded people and what education is supposed to be. But that, you know, that's kind of what I'm seeing. I mean, I think the term corporate-centered design for education, which I think you said in there, is pretty interesting. Um, yeah. And it's probably true that schools, universities more so are more corporate-centered design than their learner-centered design. And I mean, it's a tough question, but I think one thing that's definitely missing is uh, giving 
learners the ability, the awareness, the knowledge, the agency to be like, how do I use these skills so that I'm not a cog in someone else's machine? There's not, that's not, a, there's not a formulaic way to teach that, but you kind of like mm. parents can teach that good, good invested mm. mentors can teach that good, which are teachers as well. Um, and so, yeah, the incentives are all kind of screwy in education and, you know, personally, like, um, I have qualms about education as a consumer good at all. Um, because mm. learning is about love, you know, let me ask you this. How do you think the current time that we're in now with COVID-19 and the fact that everything is pretty much virtualized, how do you think that will impact education moving forward? That's a big one. <laughs> a big one. I mean, I can tell you what I'm hopeful yeah. for. I really don't know what's going to happen. I really don't know what's going to happen. I can tell you what I'm hopeful for, which going back to one of Eddie's comments, um, you know, schools basically not going back in session for the rest of the year. And basically it's a wash is what they're saying. And, you know, there's a couple of different ways to look at that. Um, I mean, it's certainly bad that people, young people are not learning, I think. I'm for learning. I'm not necessarily for time and seat, though. Uh, and I, I've really got a bone to pick with standardized tests in America. And I think that this is, Word. you know, you've got to pick one thing. Like, standardized tests are up near the top of the list of things I want to get rid of. Um, and schools, you know, there's this uh, phrase for, for people who aren't like paying attention to the standardized test fight. Why yeah. do you say that? Really two reasons. One is it's, there's this, uh, good arts law. When you put a measurement out there, it becomes a target. And so people are using now the SAT and then ninth grade versions of the SAT and third grade versions of the SAT and kindergarten versions of the SAT as the target for what to be good at. And so the SAT itself, probably not the right target to be good at, certainly not the right target to be good at for a kindergartner. That's one problem. Uh, the other is the tests themselves, because they become so high stakes and so kind of like uh, one, you know, you know uh, one time thing, they're, um, they're like destructive to the learning process in my, in my point of view. We can have a, a measurement that activates the potential of learners as opposed to just ranking it once a year, <laughs> which is what we have now. Uh, um, and so we can measure learning every day and help people get better at it. Um, so those are some, I mean, there's other people who have other reasons. Those are some of the ones off the top of my head. Yeah. I, I mean, I have one reason why it should be um, eradicated. Uh, a lot of those standardized tests are biased. Yeah. Um, so, for example, the LSAT. Let's let's look at the LSAT. The LSAT is designed and written by people from a certain educational level, background, pretty much middle class, upper class, wealthy white people. And so, a lot of the questions in the LSAT, if you grew up the way I did, they won't necessarily make sense to you. Not because you're less intelligent, but simply because you're not familiar with that world or certain things that they describe. So, the LSAT yeah. is one of those standardized exams that that in some ways keep a lot of black and brown students out of law school um, because they're not scoring high enough on the test, but it's not because they aren't smart or, you know, they don't have the passion and what it, what it takes, but simply because it's just the world which tests describe is not the world a lot of these kids are from. Yeah. Oh yeah. Not, I wouldn't even, I hadn't touched on the, the racial 
equity bits of standardized tests, but like, yeah, they're, mm-hmm. I mean, they're, I think a, a patent example of institutional racism. Yep. Eric, so you were talking a little bit in the very beginning about just your journey and the Delta. What even got you to, so you were in, was this for Teach for America or what, what got you down there? Yeah, I joined Teach for America after college. And what was like the impetus of that? Were you studying something in college that you knew you wanted to go into education or family members? Uh, yeah, so I um, I was a student teacher in uh, high school, which kind of got me interested in education. Then I, I did various kind of like tutoring programs, but I never really kind of saw myself as a teacher. Actually, I had this idea. I had a really cool social studies teacher growing up. And I was like, you know what, maybe he, he was a retired guy. And I was like, you know, maybe when I'm retired, I'll, I'll do what Mr. Schlichter did. Um, but then like, you know, Teach for America came around and I was like, oh, this is, this, this sounds like a cool experience. That was literally it. Um, I definitely, um, you know, had a social justice streak. Um, but like, it, it, I, I wasn't like, I wouldn't say I wasn't living it um, up until I got into the Delta. Um, yeah. Mm. With, how long were you at Teach for America? I did two years. Two years. What are your thoughts on, okay, so, you know, my homegirl did Teach for America. I'm not sure how long she did it. Um, um, uh, she's from the West Coast, but she characterized it like this. And, you know, it's probably, I don't know if it's controversial or something, but she was like, yo, I've never seen more this Teach of America, like the ethos was just so paternalistic white saviorism in terms of like the going in and trying to save people like that, that sort of, uh, um, I, mean, I don't know, cadence or, or, or call to action for, for something. She's like, that's, I felt it over there. I was, I'm, this is just me saying, yeah. um, you know, what she said. I, is that, is there any credence to that? I think there's a little bit of credence to that. Um, I wouldn't say it was like the dominant, feature of my experience um i mean i it's kind of hard for me to look at it with distance because i technically am a white person technically technically i know what you mean eric keep going yeah, yeah um so i mean as an organization uh Look, I respect what Wendy Kopp did. Wendy Kopp is the founder of Teach for America. And she basically said, mm-hmm. like, we need to elevate the prestige of this profession. Uh, and by that, like, meaning like mm-hmm. our, our nation's top graduates should want to be to teach. And we should, and, and education is like the number one priority. It's where we started the conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And I agree with her on both counts. I think uh, it's actually a very interesting case study over the past 30 years or so of um let's say perverse incentives or maybe corrupting incentives and so i think the the element that you called out it's like weight savior complex uh that's that's present in our society and yeah, certainly true. yeah specific to america and, true yeah yeah but so like it's certainly part of that I and mean, maybe some people's motivations were that um but I think like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a defender of Teach for America because they got a lot of people into the mix, a lot of people doing extraordinary things in education. Um, Who otherwise would not have them. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would put my, I would not be in education if not for Teach for America. And I'm not talking about mm-hmm. myself. Um, mm-hmm. 
So there are a lot of, a lot of people um, in leadership positions um, and people have started really interesting organizations that do good stuff that are very critical of Teach for America that like, I mean, it's not, I mean, there are other ways to get in, um, but they did a good marketing job to do that. Um, I think the, right. the problem is, I mean, one of the, one of the big problems is I, I, I taught for two years, it takes time to build relationships to, you know, create the kind of conditions where people can learn, um, really well. Um, and so while I, you know, benefited greatly by getting exposed to this passion that I now have and like learning a lot. And, you know, I think I did add value to my students' lives. Uh, you, you could make the critique that it's kind of like adventure tourism for, you know, sure. privileged yeah. white people graduating from college before they go off to their lawyer track or corporate check. Mm. Um, sure. yeah. But, you know, if they remember that, oh, we have this like systemic problem in this country and I should, you know, try to fix that. I think that's a, that's a net positive. Uh, that, that's that's an interesting take, Eric, um, because it's one of, one of the questions I struggle with a lot is how much allies do you reach out for and how do you do it and what's the best way to do it? Um, and what do you accept in return from those allies and what, what do you get upset at and what, what do you hope they would do more of? And thinking about all of that, you also have to think about the, the reality of America, right, that it is a segregated place. And so a lot of those kids who goes to teach America, teach, teach for America, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They may not have been exposed to any of these issues. I mean, literally, if you're white in this country, you can stay away from most things if you want to. So in yeah. some ways, I see that value in terms of what you're saying, how some of those uh, individuals, perhaps they didn't stay. Perhaps it was whatever it was for them. Perhaps it wasn't genuine. Perhaps it was. Um, but maybe if they remember it, in the future, when they're in a corporate law firm or wherever they may go, that they may have a positive impact in terms of the injustice and unfairness they see in the world and possibly even giving back. Is that what I'm hearing in some ways? I think you said it nicer than I did. If, if so, is that, is that enough for some of those individuals? No, it's not enough. Uh, I mean, like, I think there's um, people, as you say, can just kind of like forget about it. Um, you know, out of sight, out of mind. compartmentalized. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the Anand Giridatis tract. Okay. Yeah. That's right. Father's boy. Yep. Yeah. But obviously, so he's talking about a specific, specific set of actors. But, you know, if you have that systemic awareness from like, oh, shit, like these kids who happen to be black are reading at a third grade level in ninth grade because of this set of factors of history. And, and then like not, you know, say like, oh, I should probably like, you know, work really hard to fix that. Um, I mean, like, I'm not expecting everyone to be a martyr for this cause. Like, um, and I, that's another thing I would say. I think like we can't expect martyrdom, but we should ignore, we should, if, if we can see the impact of the system, we should try to fix the system. And I, I, I'm not sure if I can articulate it better than that. Um, I want to move forward a little I'm bit, but you. I want to take... I want to take a segue from some of the things you guys were just saying, because I do want to talk about just some of these moonshot ideas and just things we're talking about on the periphery when it comes to living communities. And I think something you, we were just talking about in the, is two years enough time? And you said no. And I think, you know, so much of what we do is done, is done in these like transient ways. And then we try to say, well, how do we change 
rules for society to make it more equitable. And I think we've all, the four of us have chatted in different ways of about like, what do, if you can't change the rules and we feel that like things are systemically corrupt at a certain level, then how much can you really get done within the certain system, no matter how well your intentions? We talked about this a bit at the end of last pod, right? And so I think this is why, you know, Eric spent some time and he can talk about it, but like he lived on a kibbutz for a few months in Israel. And for those who don't know what kibbutz is, he can explain it better than me because I went to one for like a few hours, so I can't really properly uh, explain it. But <laughs> I, know, I, think I know some people that, from the kibbutz. <laughs> But the the interesting thing that we've always, I think, are trying to wrap our brains around, it's like, okay, so we live in a very segregated society. We live in a society that's been, you know, America, like America is like the father of racism in, in so many ways, uh, systemically, you know, and maybe not the father, but like we've, done, we've maybe mastered it in a way that has not been done uh, elsewhere. Um, and so when we think about living communities, I'm always interested in these moonshot ideas of like, can there be new ways of people living within society, whether that's within the U.S., whether that's somehow within the U.S. territory, but done externally. But, you know, people are starting to talk about like charter cities, charter communities, different ways that we can approach these things. And the two year thing just got me thinking down this path because in my mind, in order for us to potentially find new ways that actually can have longer term solutions, there's just an A, it needs to be more time put into them, but B, it has to be done in a, in a totally different way with learnings from education being part of that pot. Um, so Eric, maybe like really quickly, yeah. can you just describe to people what a kibbutz is and then maybe yeah. just a little bit of like what you've been learning on some of the, these yeah. charter communities? In yeah. other words, so, Eric, yeah. How can we how, how can we recreate Wakanda for real? <laughs> okay, for, yeah, I love I love that question. <laughs> All right, so I was gonna take Jim's question. <laughs> no, no, but like, okay, so a kibbutz is a um, it's an intentional community. It's a collective farming community, um, and basically, I lived on this um, small town with three hundred people. I didn't leave, and it's like completely self sufficient pretty much get some a little bit of government support, but pretty much self-sufficient. And for me, it like was life-changing and eye-opening because it was like real true community. I mean, by no stretch is this place a perfect place, a lot of drama. Um, but like you're there, you're in service to other people. Other people are in service to you. You see them, you might not like them. They might not like you, but like you're around each other and you kind of like have each other's back. Um, and I'm not saying this was the optimal Wakanda. This is like, you know, Wakanda yeah. 0.1. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, I've been thinking about this um, since, I, since I got off the kibbutz. And so just to say like, yeah, this is a moonshot idea, but one kind of thing to like maybe make it not so moonshot is there's this great book called The Crabgrass Frontier. And hey, it actually Kenneth be interesting. Jackson. You know that book? Oh, I love that book. Sorry to interrupt. I need to read that. No, no I need like, to read that. So now I'm making hey, this conversation now, and with, you know, I want to do like a book club and like reread it with a like, um, you know, a racial um, equity lens. lens. Yeah. Um, I'm in. But the, the, um, the basic gist of it is like ex-urban development. Number one is the fuel of urbanization. So like how far away can people live from the center of the city, which the center of the city means where they work. And it's a function of transportation transportation infrastructure. Uh, and so we're now in 2020, autonomous drivers, 
autonomous vehicles are around the corner and remote work changes where the jobs are. So not a crazy idea to say, what does exurban development look like? Um, I will also say that I was living in Chicago most recently working on R&D for public schools, trying to kind of um, help schools think about what you know, they needed to teach for the future. And we had schools all over the South side. And I remember doing uh, interviews with a lot of parents and students. And we had, I, I remember one parent in particular had uh, two students. Uh, one was in kindergarten, one was in fifth grade. She was a single mother and she commuted basically four hours a day uh, for minimum wage. And I hate to say it, but the edu- the education that we were giving her kids, not certainly not worth that and like not nearly as good as it could have been. Um, so I kind of like say, let's design a Wakanda for her. Um, and like, how do we just totally flip the economics? Uh, it's like those four hours a day, you just totally get back. Um, so I would, would like to start there. Um, I don't know. I mean, like we could kind of like go a bunch of different directions. Um, but I think it's totally doable. And, um, yeah, it's it's time. I think it's time people start doing it. Eric, this is fascinating. Now, let me ask you this. A part of that conversation or a part of thinking about this um, utopia or Wakanda for her or Haiti, whatever we want to call it, would you say basic universal income would be a part of that? What role does that play in, in, this, in, this, in this new world? It's a good question. I mean, I, uh, it's a really good question. Um, do you, do you, do you actually person- pay her for those four hours she's traveling? Or, you know, like, how do you make up for some of those other things that she'll need to help her? even well, can, better in that world. Um, I think there's all different sorts of ways to, um, well, one, she's got skills to offer that the community will need, uh, whether it's teaching her kids and other kids, cleaning, caring, cooking. Uh, these are all things that are really valuable, <laughs> yeah. and especially post-COVID. Um, is, so I think it's just a, a, re, a way to like uh, our boy Farber, Andrew Yang had a great line, like revaluing how we think about human worth and like what, what, pe- yep. what, what, what we value. Um, okay. And so communities, I mean, I, I'm, I'm for UBI because I mean, obviously I like Yang, I like Martin Luther King. Um, seems too obvious, but that seems like a po- political thing that needs to happen somewhere. Uh, yep. But we can, I think the other thing, like, you know, people were locked out of building wealth in this country. We can create new wealth and lock people into to being part of that wealth creation. You know, that's a very Eric, question way. for you. Yeah. Do you think these things can be reimagined within current large urban centers or they need to be done in smaller locales to start? I don't know. Um, I, I think that's like, I think that's like the billion and, dollar question. I think it's both and, and like, I'm, I'm not an expert in this stuff. I just like to think about it and talk about it, I guess. Uh, but I think the cities are, have become um, too ingrained with too many of their things, too many of their, uh, a, you know, government agencies are kind of like, have the inertia of old government. Um, and the, the opportunity to start from a clean slate and look at the technologies we have available. And I should also, I, I left this part out, like I'm an education person. I, I would anchor this community around education and schools. If, if you ask people why they move where they move, 
if they have the privilege to move for education. Hank, I'm sorry, I gotta jump in here. I'm sorry, yeah. I gotta jump in. A few follow-up questions. One is yeah. the educational system as it's set up is very racist, right? I mean, yeah. it was literally designed through redlining and all sorts of ways, even though we've started public education in terms of black folks. Um, at every juncture, there's been some sort of movement to get us away from it, push us away from it, or keep it away from us. Um, even the way it's funded is exactly because of that. Within that new world, what role does capitalism play, which I believe is attached to racism and the level of education some people get versus others who look a certain way and have a certain amount of money? So can you really think of this world, whether it's in cities, outside of cities, without first wrestling with these really big issues or is when you're thinking about it you just try to not get to that next level yet because it's just you don't have an answer for it so you kind of like just want to take it from the angle which you can't well i'm curious what y'all think um i don't have the answer but i i do know that people aren't born with racism or hate um and people are a function of their environment you know we should educate people for truth and beauty and love and so those are all like nice ideas, I guess. Uh, so how do you actually do that? I mean, like this is, I mean, you can go look on um, any kind of real estate website. There's land for cheap that if you got 20 families together and said, we, we can do this, we have the skills to do this. Mm -hmm. They can kind of choose to opt out of the current system. If the like current it. system is so patently racist and not serving them, why would you, why would you stay in? And people are locked in. They don't have a choice. But I would just ask us to say, well, can we give them a choice? Last question real quick, Eric. I'm sorry. Um, on that note, in the kibbutz, do they also live under the same laws as all Israelis do? If so, then in that new world that we're talking about, where they hear wherever, um, are they governed by their own set of laws in connection with sort of like the federal government, like the federalism we have here? How does that work? Or is it just like Native Americans' relationship with America? I'm just trying to get a clue. Um, I mean, I'm all for uh, flexibility and governance models, but like we kind of have a one-size-fits-all situation in America, more or less. There's something called uh, the Charter Cities Institute that advocates for like flexible giving people flexibility with what kind of law systems they want to set up. But I think there honestly is plenty of flexibility under the current system. You would just need to say, hey, we're going to go incorporate a town somewhere. Yeah, this feels like a legal question more than anything. I think you just right. <laughs> need to identify like states and places that have the loosest ways. But Ed, I know you were you were kind of pointing at this. And actually, I spoke to a friend of mine whose uh, boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, was like working with the Navajo Nation, and I was trying to understand like mm. how that could work. Mm. And it's actually a lot more complicated than just like being like, hey, could we like fit within the nation because that's external, but like they actually don't get any right. of like the infrastructure stuff that actually is some of the nice stuff of being within. So yeah. it, it's, right. it's as exciting as it sounds to be like totally out, it seems yeah. to me, and this could be totally wrong, that the best situation is being in, but just finding a place that you can basically incorporate on your own. Well, well Father, I'll tell you, speaking of, of that, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, my buddy Saki, who's a writer for The Times, was working on a story. 
um, pretty much about the Native Americans somewhere in Massachusetts, right? They're actually, that particular tribe is the, they're the first tribe to have lived in America on this land. And there's a land in that area where they wanted to build a casino there. And there are other casinos in that area already. And those casinos are owned by Trump's friend. Trump has been beefing with Native Americans as long as 40 years um, because obviously he was in the casino business and he sees them as like getting in his way in terms of getting what he wants. So four weeks ago, four to six weeks ago, when all this craziness is happening, he went and overturned a very small and obscure law, which president have the power to do, and took the land away from the people where they were going to build the casino as a way of trying to raise money to fund their education and other things. He took that land away in the midst of all of this pandemic thing happening. And so now they, they are back in court with him trying to get the land back. But this is a real example, Eric, of, again, you said it's more flexible than you think, but here's, here's a real life example of the president coming in, taking, I mean, think of the history, right, of yeah. pandemics when the Europeans came here that pretty much wiped these entire people out. And then you're talking about 400 something years later, the same thing in some ways happening. And then this president is using that obscure power to take land away from these people. So that world that we're thinking of, that's going to be very much a reality in that world. So Farah, I was just wanted to connect that to what you were saying earlier, because I thought it was a real life example in terms of how these things work. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, look, this is, I guess the four of us, none of us are lawyers and especially like specialty lawyers in, in any of these fields. So it's hard for us to speak intelligently to the things I try to always think about is like, what, what do we know? Right? Like what makes sense? And like in our everyday lives, the most expensive things are healthcare, educate, well, if you higher education, uh, housing, and then obviously if you were building something, it would be infrastructure costs can be insane. Right? So, you can go buy like a, an abandoned piece of land, but then the plumbing, the water, all that different stuff, like do you actually have the money to do all those things? Within the other things, housing, if you're in a place that housing's kind of already there, not too expensive, you can bring in people who actually have skills to help there. So that to me is like somewhat doable, right? When you're thinking through this. And then education, um, once again, well, we'll defer to Eric, but it seems like there are innovative ways that we can do this a lot cheaper than it's being done, which then leaves healthcare being the, the tricky one because it's <laughs> health, if, if, if someone needs a surgery or something, that's just expensive no matter what. Either the government's paying for it or you're paying for it, but someone's got to pay for that. So that I would say is always one of the tricky ones when I'm thinking of this. Like you, you can't be so far out there that if you don't have access to some semblance of healthcare. Um, so anyway, I think, I think like healthcare and infrastructure are actually the two trickiest ones when it comes to just like upfront costs, uh, which is why like you need some semblance of existing scale. But yeah, I don't know. Those are like things I try to think about. Cause I'm always like, what's, t what's tangible? What can we actually build upon? So this isn't like just some random moonshot, but like, what can be actually envisioned in steps of like in or even just thinking through it's like well what does this place actually have to look like or what are the what's the criterion to even get something like this off the ground uh, so anyway those are my thoughts eric let me ask you a question buddy you think if um black people go and say to america hey 
we have a very challenging relationship. You don't like us and we just want to live and we just can't do this anymore. You know what? Give us California and go ahead and fuck yourself and live your, your world with, <laughs> with, live your world with our fried chicken and, you know, good music and all that stuff. What? Um, <laughs> Damn, man. <laughs> and what do you think America says to black people? Well, I mean, who, who's, who's saying this? I didn't know that there was one. America. Are you, are you the spokesman? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm representing <laughs> the black people right here. I mean, I think America is many things, man. Yeah. But you're not getting California. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> not Cali. Yeah. Maybe, Yo, maybe Ed, Montana, right, Eric? Yeah. Look, bring in the historic, but to kind of like answer that a little bit, bring in the historic of yeah. like, when have there been like black movements to set up yeah. their own mm. stuff? Because I actually want to hear about mm. that. And I know you've got something to put mm. on this. Garveyites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jim, that's a good, that, that scenario yeah. is actually uh, one that's been attempted a couple of times. Um, yeah, yeah, and you know, they, of they, Malcolm oh, X's birthday today. It's Malcolm hey. X's day, and I'm claiming it. America yeah. won't give it to us, but I'm claiming it. Oh, you're claiming it? Okay, good. Yeah, Malcolm well, X's day. That's why my middle name's X. Yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> I knew it. Old, I knew old it, to Malcolm X. <laughs> I knew it. Oh, man. Oh, I thought oh. it was John Brown, but I knew it. Go ahead. Bro. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, I mean, this is a complicated, so I mean. Black people have been demanding their own sovereignty since probably right after emancipation. I mean, through, you know, uh, what is her name? Callie House. Callie House, who was born in six, 1861, who was a slave, uh, super young, but uh, over the next who was sort of 20. Who was, yes, who was enslaved. Right. It's not, you know, what was done to her rather than who she is. So, um, so her, she led sort of a, 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 a big movement um, initially. That was like the sort of the first movement for reparations and stuff. But this, that pretty much was started black nationalism, which, which, is, which is a lot of things. But the biggest thing black nationalism is, is um, sort of unity, self-determination, and um, sort of uh, uh, social politics through uh, the lens of, of what black people need. So that's been, you know, that started with Martin Delaney um, you know, who was, who was opposed to Frederick Douglass in the beginning that, you know, that, that moved into, you know, Booker T. Washington, W.E.D. Boyce, uh, Marcus Garvey, Garvey, you know, that's yeah. Martin and Malcolm, all of these factions within yeah. black nationalism and, but black nationalism was, was the movement, um, which was the first, the original anti-racist movement that, um, you know, one of the things that, that, uh, they wanted to do, uh, was not just get reparations, but, um, you know, there was a faction within the movement that considered black separatism, which is basically what you're talking about, Jim, is said, hey, listen, these Native Americans have sovereign territories in, in the United States. That is the only group that that has that, right? In exchange for, you know, obviously earlier, and it was an exchange for, they, they were not American citizens, but they got sort of national sovereignty and their own, their, their own territories under their own rule. Um, and that kind of changed over the years after, you know, America continued to war with them for their land and stuff. But when you're inside the jurisdiction of American territory, you can get taxes levied against you. There's, there's all of these things that, you know, unless you're outside of America, America can levy these sort of land rights against you and stuff. But yeah. I think I mean, just probably, like did. yeah, I think probably yeah. like the, you know, the, the approach to say, hey, listen, we want to do our own thing. We want to sort of bracket off our own. Um, institutions, our own society, we'll police ourselves, we'll politic ourselves. Um, I think that that was probably at its height in the 60s and 70s. You know, I want to say that um, after, 
Martin died and, and you know, Malcolm was already dead and Stokely Carmichael, you know, changed his name to Kwame Ture and really coined, I don't know, he didn't coin the term black power, but he popularized it. And, and you know, basically what they wanted was, hey, listen, you owe us for all of this labor, you owe us for all this, for Jim Crow. We want Never reparations dream. and we want those things so that we can all build our own black cities and our own institutions that are separate from your jurisdiction. And, you know, uh, uh, Nixon was like, yeah, get the fuck out of here. Like, I'm not, we're not doing that, you know? You can be separate, but you get no reparations, in fact. You can, yeah. you can go in and, and through your own capitalist means build separate, up your own institutions. Yeah, so it's this, it's this weird paradox where, hmm. you know, Nixon takes it, co-ops it, and characterize, car- caricatures, you know, black power and says, you can be separate, but we're still gonna tax you. You're still gonna income tax you. We're still gonna property tax you. You're still gonna pay sales tax, um, and you 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 will get still cut out of the public good. On you. Yeah, and you're gonna get cut out of the public good. But I think a lot of the things that you all mentioned, schools, you know, infrastructure, uh, you know, sewage, uh, plumbing, um, public transportation, all of those things are what make America great and create prosperous communities and have historically, you know, and, and Kenneth talks about this in Crabgrass Frontier. Um, you know, in the suburbanization of America, you can't really do it in American soil without public aid. It's sort of the private and the public partnership and um, all of the things that are really good and, and create, you know, uh, uh, sort of equitable resources are, are, are public goods. And it is the curtailing of public goods that create the starkest inequalities um, yeah. that we've seen historically and then produce bad schools, produce crime, produced you know, uh, uh, high incarceration, yeah. and to, but on top of extra policing. So it's, it, it, is the, it is the deterioration, deterioration, the deterioration of public goods that I think is, is the, is the biggest culprit to, if you want to, if you want to talk about black and white inequality, you know, so to combat that is, 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 is really tough. But I think that, you know, and, and far the, the, the TED mm-hmm. talk that you sent that, you know, we watched, um, you know, the, the guy was talking about an interesting, you know, community that sprung up. I think it was sort of outside of China's, I don't know where, it was in Hong Kong or something, but I think in order for this, this for what you all are saying to work, it, it has to be outside of like America, any any American municipality. I, I, if As long as it's located inside, you know, power will come in and swoop it up. And, you know, there's, I don't think there's, there's any escaping, but, you know, from using charter communities uh, charter cities um, globally. I think that's that's interesting, but I, you know, I, I don't know if you know but, Ed, Jim's it, example that'll ever happen. I think really Ed, quickly, Ed. I think the thing that always is con- confusing is because I, I I do think you're right in a lot of ways. When I go back and forth in this, but there's a part of me that's like it's got to be done here because if the whole point is trying to be more equitable, we can't just like go off somewhere that's unreachable or is reachable right. for some to get to, but not reachable for the others, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's always trying to think through like, you know, if you, if you build a new place, but it's all one type of person and it's not like, you know, this, this range, then what are you doing with it? Like, why are you even doing it to begin with? If you're gonna take a moonshot, then like actually do it in a way to try something new. So I just don't yeah. see how that fully works if you do it out of the country, even though I totally get your, Point. So I don't know. I think that's where I, I yeah. get chopped. Maybe the whole thing's flawed from the beginning. But yeah, if yeah. it's a completely private effort, right through, in order to fund the thing, it's through completely private means. That's interesting. That's insanely costly. You know, that's it. I don't think it's ever been done um, in in American history. Um, but but I will say, 
you know, that all of the good communities we think about that that thrive in in, in America historically have just done it through public aid. And anybody that but, tells but, but you Ed, differently but is Ed, lying. And let me ask you a question because you know, yeah. you miss Mr. New Deal. One of the things we also yeah. talk about is how the, the New Deal was the greatest. I mean, until recently, until this these latest stimulus packages out of Washington, the New Deal was probably right. the biggest public investment. I'm not sure this this COVID thing was public investment, so never mind. But the New Deal was one of the biggest biggest investments made in America, and the New Deal um, adversely actually did the opposite of helping. Um, black and brown people would actually widen the gap between black and white folks and, 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 and created that the two Americas in some ways increased that as we know it today. So the, the two can't work. So what, you know, what, what's the thing with that? Yeah, I think that um, all progressive things that have happened historically in America have just been um, attached to racism. You know, I don't think it's it's almost it's 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 sort of one one doesn't happen without the other almost you know what I mean like yeah. it's the New Deal red lines you know are, don't exist without green lines you know the New exactly. Deal that produced public underwriting of 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 the housing market those those affluent communities in the suburbs that were that were created for the first time um, through the New Deal those green lines that says this is a good place to invest. You can't define green lines without red lines, without saying, hey, this black community is a bad place to invest. So, you know, but also we're gonna tax them the same way. So in a weird, perverse way, they're subsidizing your affluence. Yes, wow. And and the the gap is wider. Yeah. Wow. But I don't know, man. Maybe it could change in the future, but you know, the track record doesn't look good. So I I think though at the end of the day that's why you have you can't start somewhere so big and at the end of the day it's not going to be perfect right it's kind of like yeah. everything you do nothing's in a vacuum there's there's human conditions everything's going to be imperfect right. to a certain degree but I think there's something to be said about if you could work within a place that had a lot of the the, the infrastructure was already there right so you're not having to build out all those different things. I think the way that you can change the rules and the laws, if you had the ability to make those changes as a unit within a smaller place is actually where it gets really interesting because at that point you at least can avoid the need for a huge investment to start. And what you're really starting with is just the people because what this is all predicated on is that a future city can be sustained somewhat because a lot of people are making enough income remotely. So yeah. if you and can so, start from that aspect yeah. and enough money's brought in, and then like to, you know, going back to the universal basic income or whatever that is, maybe this new place has to be established within it, that it's within its charter that everyone has to pay in on a percentage or some sort of aspect of what you're bringing in as a reinvestment vehicle <laughs> within the group like and Europe. you start and, and you start, right. And you start with a certain amount that you can actually make work. But I guess to me, it's like, I don't, there's no harm in start at least trying to do something because to your point, things just keep getting like worse. Like this PPP was like an utter disaster. Like black and brown people are going to be disproportionately fucked even more for years. And that was a government like thing. So, uh, I, I don't see, I know there's always this back and forth, what's better private, what, or is it government or this or that? It's yeah. always not one or the other. It's always trying to figure ownership. out some blend. Yeah. Um, so to me, this is like taking some private ownership, but at least still doing it within 
some confines, but I don't know. There's no right answer to this. this can is, this can is I react to some of this stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jump in, Eric. All You're right, a guest, so, man. You should have told us to shut up no, and let I, you talk. You're no, the guest. No, I like it. I, I, got, I got a few things, but then I actually think I need to jump. But, um, <laughs> well, first of all, as a hobbyist historian, it's really cool to be around a real historian. So that, I, I appreciate all that. <laughs> Trust um, me, I know. I feel the same but, way every time. I don't know. Like I would, if, if we had more time, I would ask you the question. So it'll be a rhetorical question. Like, do you think that that, you know, yeah, I agree with the statement that all of American history is like also racist history. Uh, and I just wonder if it's always going to be that way. I don't, for me personally, I'm an optimist. I mean, like it's easy for me to be an optimist, I guess, but I'm hopeful that like we can, uh, you know, America has to get better at this. Um, and ultimately the Trump story that you told Jim is like, Oh God, you know, that's just terrible. But, uh, one of my favorite lines is culture is way upstream of politics. And, um, you know, the culture that got us Donald Trump baked in however many generations ago, or maybe one generation ago. And unfortunately, Donald Trump's politics affect culture today, but culture is upstream of politics and, you know, education is culture. That's that politics quote. And so like, we need, like, now is the time we need to reimagine culture uh, so that we have better politics. Uh, and so I think it's all of these things. Um, and yes, you're going to have I mean, people are always starting intentional communities and going off and being hippie and trying to live off the grid. And I think we sh there should be more of that in a more kind of like open and accessible way that's available to everybody. And all these other things, reimagining cities, reimagining second, third tier cities. For me, my personal bet, this, and Barbara, I love what you were saying about healthcare and all the other things. And I know that uh, you mentioned, um, Booker T in some of your history, Eddie, uh, and I sent mm -hmm. uh, Farber uh, Booker T's, um, he wrote it in uh, 1896, The Fruits of Industrial Training. He's talking about setting up the Tuskegee Institute. And there's mm -hmm. a line yeah. in there, and you were talking about vocational training as well. And there's a line in there where he says, uh, slavery presented a problem of destruction, freedom presents the problem of construction. Uh, and this problem, like, what do we want to construct? We have the freedom to do it. What kind of community do we want to construct in uh, the 2020? And I think the model of Tuskegee, honestly, is where I would start. And so, like, we need healthcare. Okay, let's start a med school. Uh, we need sewage. Okay, let's start sustainable design and, um, you know, circular systems, whatever. Um, and so I, I, go, I go back to education. Um, I think, um, you know, Eric. students constructing. Yeah, go ahead. That's all, that's all I got. Eric, no, 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 no. You're good, Eric. What role do you think technology can help? Because I wanted to ask this when Far was speaking, um, but I, you know, lost it for a second. Do you think technology can help to speed up that process in terms of creating community? Because now if more people can work remotely, um, you know, like money, for example, we there's there's a world where you may not even well that world is already here where you don't even yeah. have to exchange money anymore um what role will technology play in the speed um of creating such a community i mean it's a i mean technology the technology we have now is amazing so i uh, i would imagine so um i hope so i know it's like for education it's it can be an extremely powerful tool but like any tool can be misused very often is um, but yeah, people can find each other. They can raise money. They can communicate, share things, learn things. 
I mean, for, especially for learning. I mean, it's just an incredible tool for learning. Word. Eric, you gonna you were gonna say something else before the technology question or after? I think. No, I just say that um, I'm inspired by Booker T and the Tuskegee oh, Institute yeah. as a place right, to start. Right. Yeah, Booker T, very complicated man. Small C conservative, but the first black conservative, I think. Documented yeah, but conservatism, conservatism in, in 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 that in that time, Ed, and 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 the conservative that Booker T was, is it the same as the conservative we we are we talking about today? Well, no, of course not. People people tie like you know conservatism to partisanship and stuff, but I say conservative in in terms of uh, Booker T was more so opposed to W.E.B. Du Bois is more of an integrationist wanting, you know, that political power. Booker T was like, ah, forget about the political power for now. What we need is economic power, which will then gain, you know, respectability, and then we'll get, we'll yep. get political power as a result, um, mm. you know, which he was proven okay. wrong. Yeah. Uh, okay. Geez, that's tough. Oof. I want to keep going on that, Ed, but I think Eric got to go. Wow. Okay. We'll pick. We'll oh, pick no, I think we'll yeah, kind of want to pull that on. Let's too. continue this, though. We'll put a pin yeah, in there. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's do the let's do that book club if you uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. yeah. Count me in. Yeah, Yo, you down. guys have said it a few times. Say it one more time for the listeners what that book was. Crabgrass Frontier. Yep. Kenneth Crabgrass T. Jackson. Frontier. I think the subtitle is The Suburbanization of America, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Yeah. 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 Subscribe. Subscribe to this yeah. podcast. Yeah. For real, man. We just subscribe to, to God. Yeah, we we, we always get text pod. from all the people listening that like you should have asked this, you should have asked that. Just DM us your questions or honestly, you can email us at the honestly speaking podcast at gmail.com. Super simple. And, you know, if you like what you heard today, send it to your friends, get them subscribed. Let's get our numbers up. We got a few hundred listening every week. We got to get in the thousands. Like, make us famous. Let's do it. But, Eric, we appreciate you, man. This was fun. All right. Thanks for having me on. Hey, Eric, go enjoy the heat, man. We're going to make our lunch happen post COVID, all right? And um, Damn, by the way, Eric, I'm gonna give you a call so we can talk about this app thing me and Far was talking about. So we'll oh, talk. I hit you up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. All right. All right. All right. See ya.